You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. If you would please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We're starting a new series this morning, and we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and uh, I'll show you how this ties in. So let's go ahead and read Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. So we're going to begin Luke 10, starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we come to it this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through it. We ask that you would teach us. Lord, where there are things that we have incorrectly believed, Lord, we ask that you would correct those things where there are attitudes that are not according to your heart. Lord, would you uh, shape us in those areas? Lord, overall, we ask that we would be shaped by your word in the ways that we think, in the ways that we act, in the ways that we live. And so, Lord, we come desiring to have you shape us and form us and desiring to hear from you. So, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us and we'd hear, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this morning, we're beginning a new series. The series is called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who. We're taking the next seven weeks to honestly look at some of the biggest objections that people have when it comes to Christianity and the Bible. A few months ago, I posted a poll online that uh, I shared with, uh, with you guys on Realm, which is kind of our internal website. Many of you filled it out and shared it with friends. We got a lot of responses. And the question I asked in that poll was this. How would you complete this sentence? I could never believe in a God who, I gave some some possible uh, opportunities for different answers and I also gave just kind of blank slate, like you can fill it out. And so we took the responses we got from that poll, but also uh, what we learned from other research and we identified seven topics which people say make it hard for them to believe in God or to embrace Christianity. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we taking seven weeks to study about this? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, because as Christians, we believe that what you believe matters. So we believe that what a person believes matters. You know, the very most famous verse in the Bible is probably John 3.16. What does it say? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, what, believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, what you believe matters. Eternity hinges on what you believe. And so therefore, it only makes sense that we would help people in areas where they struggle to believe, that we'd help address some of those issues which create barriers to faith and belief. Secondly, our other reason we're doing this is because we want to help you in the areas where you struggle. We know that a not only from this poll, but we know just from uh, knowing you and knowing ourselves, right, that many of you who are Christians, you, you wanna follow Jesus, you wanna believe, you're, you're trying, and yet there are still things that you would say, you know what, I honestly still struggle with a couple things in regard to Christianity and the Bible and believing in God. And so we wanna help you strengthen your faith by helping address some of those things that create 
barriers or hurdles to belief. And thirdly, our other goal with this is that we want to equip you. We want to equip you to be able to talk to others. We know that you have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers who talk about these topics that we're going to be talking about over these next seven weeks. And we want to equip you to be able to talk with them, give you some kind of tools, some information, some guidelines so you can talk with them and hopefully help them move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. Now, being that today is Mother's Day, we decided to kick off this series with a topic that is pertinent to you ladies, and that is this. When it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the struggles that some people have is that they say, I could never believe in a God who encourages the suppression of women and minorities. So that's what we're gonna be talking about. Does the Bible encourage the suppression of women and minorities? So let's talk about the word on the street, right? What is the word on the street when it comes to Christianity, women, and minorities? Well, you might look at media, you might look at different things. I did a few searches online just to see what is the word on the street about Christians when it comes to women and minorities. And you won't be surprised to hear this, but Christianity is sometimes accused of being complicit in the suppression of women and minorities. For example, people have used the Bible in the past to defend the practice of slavery in the United States. Domineering husbands have used the Bible to control their wives or to control their families and keep them under their thumb. Research shows, this is interesting, that the type of man who is most likely to abuse their wife or girlfriend is a man who claims to be a Christian and yet does not go to church. Those are both two important factors. They claim to be a Christian and do not go to church. So if there's a man who claims to be a Christian and yet is not connected to a church, that is the number one demographic for men who beat their wives and girlfriends. Now, some of them feel justified in doing so and they feel that the Bible even gives them permission to act in that way and to domineer over their wives. I mean, truly, doesn't the Bible say, wives, submit to your husbands? And so when it comes to minorities, right, has not the Bible been used throughout history by those in power to solidify their power and to suppress those under their authority? And if people question their power, they would turn to verses like Romans chapter 13, which says that God has put those people who are in power in power. And so therefore to question their authority is basically to question God's authority. And they, people have abused those passages in order to keep people uh, suppressed and subjected to them. Some people would claim that when it comes to women and minorities, Christianity has led to injustice and inequality. And their conclusion is this, wouldn't we all just be better off if we could move on past, uh, you know, throw off the shackles of religion and build together a world of justice and equality? Now, first of all, we have to acknowledge this simple fact. The Bible has been used by people throughout history to justify the suppression of women and minorities. We don't deny that. We don't hide from that fact. But here's what we want to talk about today. Does a true reading of the Bible lead to those things? Or are those things rather a misuse of the Bible? That's really the big question. And here's what I would say to you. This is my big idea is this. A close look at the Bible will reveal this, that those who use the Bible in these ways are misusing the Bible. Because if you look at what the Bible really has to say about women and minorities, which is what we're gonna do today, here's what you're gonna see. According to the Bible, women and minorities are three things. Equal, they are unique, and they are loved. So women and minorities, according to the Bible, are equal, they are unique, and they are loved. We're gonna break down each of those. But listen, the fact that some people have misused the Bible to do things which the Bible did not intend 
That should not surprise us. I mean, isn't it true that people use good things for bad purposes all the time? Most of you probably came here in a car, right? So is a car a good thing? Well, I think a car is a good thing. Uh, You know, you use a car to come to church. You use a car to get your children safely to school. I used a car on one occasion to save somebody's life. So is a car a good thing? Well, I think so. But can you use a car in a way that it was never intended to be used in order to do bad things? Absolutely. Can you use a car in a way that hurts people? Yes. Can you use it as a weapon? Of course, it wasn't designed to be used that way. It wasn't intended to be used that way. But you can use it in that way, can't you? See, the problem in that case, of course, isn't with the car. The problem is with the person and their evil intention with the car. And the same is true when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is exceedingly good, guys. It is the revelation of God to us, right? These are the words of life. These are the very words of God spoken to us, which have the power to transform our hearts and our minds and change our lives. But can the Bible be hijacked and used in ways that it was never meant to be used or intended to be used? Of course. But in that case, is the problem with the Bible or is the problem with the person and their malintention? Well, of course it's the latter, The question is this, when you come to the Bible or when I come to the Bible, are we coming to it in order to hear what it says and let it speak to us on its own terms and to let it shape us and form us into certain kind of people? Or are you coming to the Bible looking to justify what you already think and do? There's a really big difference between the two. Let me give you an example. You know, did you know this? There is a verse in the Bible that says, there is no God. There, that phrase is found in the Bible. Did you know that? There is no God. Wow, right? Wow, the Bible says there is no God. Those actual words are in the Bible. Well, of course they are. But if you read that verse in its entire context, rather than stripping it from its context and ripping it out of place from the surrounding words around it, well, you can make it say almost anything you want it to say. But if you take it on its own terms, you'll find that those words, there is no God, are surrounded by other words. And that the whole phrase says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So does the Bible say there is no God? Yes, but is the intention of the Bible to express that there is no God? Not at all, just the opposite. Do you see what I'm saying? If you want, you can actually use the very words of the Bible to misrepresent the message of the Bible. And sometimes people do that, right? They use the words of the Bible and take them out of context and twist their meaning and use them in ways that the Bible never intended them to be used. Now, I told you this just a minute ago. I said the most likely person statistically in the United States to beat their wife or girlfriend is a man who claims to be a Christian, who identifies as an evangelical Christian, but does not go to church. Now, both of those factors are important. Here's what's interesting. Let's look at another statistic. One of the least likely people in the United States to beat their wife or girlfriend is an evangelical Christian who attends church regularly. Huge swing, right? So church attendance differentiates those apparently who are more likely to beat their wives from those who are almost not at all likely to beat their wives. Well, why, right? Does that mean that going to church makes you stop beating your wife? Well, hopefully, yes, but, but maybe it's something deeper than that, right? Maybe it's this. What's more likely is this, that those who attend church weekly or regularly, they have a couple things that people who don't attend church have. For, first of all, they have, an, they have 
They are being shaped week in and week out by the whole counsel of God's word. They're being shaped week in and week out by the whole counsel of God's word. Whereas those who are disconnected from church body, they not only lack accountability, that's also a big factor, but their relationship with the Bible is not one of coming to it in order to hear and be shaped by it, but more often it's one where they're coming to it to look for justification for the things that they already think and feel. Where can I find a verse that backs up what I already think about politics, about women, about this and that? And of course they'll find them, but again, that's like stripping something out of its context and not hearing it on its own terms. This is exactly what happened with slavery, isn't it? This is what happened with slavery. Those who wanted to defend the practice of slavery had already made up their minds that they wanted to practice slavery. And so they come to the Bible looking for justification and they found it and they said, look, the Bible talks about slavery, therefore slavery must be okay. Whereas on the other hand, other people who came to the Bible and allowed the whole council of scripture to shape them, they were the very people who went against slavery, right? They said the entire ethic of the Bible counteracts this whole argument for slavery. It goes against slavery, it undermines slavery. And and when the Bible uses the word slavery, it's in a completely different way or different sense than the way that you guys are talking about it. And it was those Christians who led the abolitionist movement against slavery to end it. And they did it, why? Because of the Bible, Okay, so what kind of relationship do you want to have with the Bible? Let me ask you. Do you want to have a relationship with the Bible where you come to it to hear the whole counsel of what Scripture says on its own terms and you let it shape you and shape how you think and live and act? Or have you already made up your mind and you just want to come to the Bible to uh, have it strengthen or, or back up or prove what you already think and what you already do? Now, obviously, the honest approach is the first one, which allows the Bible to speak on its own terms, speak for itself, and allows it to shape us. So what does the Bible say? If we look at the whole Bible, what does it have to say about women and minorities? Well, according to the Bible, women and minorities are three things, equal, unique, and loved. They're probably more than just those three, but those are the three we're gonna talk about. Let's talk about these. Equal. The text we read a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 10. It's the story of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now we know from uh, other places in the Bible, for example, in the Gospel of John, that Mary and Martha, uh, they lived in a town called Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And they had a brother named Lazarus. And the three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these siblings, they were all followers of Jesus. And they weren't just followers, but they were actually close personal friends. So Jesus goes into this house at one point uh, in the town of Bethany, Now, we don't know who else was there with him, but from the preceding verses, we see that not only was Jesus with his 12 disciples, but there were large crowds of people who were following Jesus everywhere he went. And so he enters this house, and it's very likely that Jesus is not in this house alone. I mean, it's almost sure that he's at least with his disciples, but perhaps with a large group of people. So here's Jesus. Picture the scene. You know, small house probably has two rooms. Here's Jesus in a living room. He's teaching says that he was teaching in the other room. And there's Martha, she's in the kitchen and she's working away. She's trying to be a good host. Meanwhile, Mary, the sister, she's in the living room with Jesus listening to him teach. And Martha gets upset. She complains. She thinks that Mary should be in the kitchen with her, not out in the living room. And Jesus tells Martha, he says, Martha, I can see that you're anxious. You're upset. But the stuff that you're anxious about 
is not necessary. He tells her, the stuff you're worried about is not necessary. He says, one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, maybe you're wondering, cool story and all, but how does this have to do with anything that we're talking about? I mean, this, we're talking about women and minorities. What does this story have to do with that? Well, there's something really interesting about this story that I think gets overlooked most of the time when this story gets told. Most of the time when people talk about this story, they say, well, see, the issue here is that Martha is working for Jesus, but Mary is uh, spending time with Jesus. And so you should be a Mary and not a Martha, right? But here's the deal. The, the issue in this story, that is an issue in this story, absolutely. But it's not the only issue. And it's maybe not even the primary issue. See, it's not just that Martha is working for Jesus and Mary's spending time with Jesus. There's another dynamic going on here, and that's this. Martha is assuming the traditionally female role of serving and providing hospitality, whereas Mary is taking on the traditionally male role of sitting with the other men in the room, the disciples, and listening to the teaching at Jesus' feet. I mean, you can think about it this way. How many of you have ever been at a big family Thanksgiving or a big community Thanksgiving and the women hung out in the kitchen and the men hung out in the other room and watched football, right? You know how that goes. Well, essentially, that's what's going on here. Mary's hanging out in the room with the guys watching football, which in this case is better than football, right? She's listening to Jesus. And Martha is upset that she's not in the kitchen with her doing the ladies stuff, which is where she should be because she's a woman. Martha wants to make a good impression, and there's a lot of cultural expectations. That's why she's anxious, right? If people come to your house, there's expectations. You gotta provide them something to eat, something to drink. And so she's anxious. She wants to make a good impression. This is Jesus. He's a celebrity. And, and so Martha, she's upset because Mary, in her opinion, is doing something which is reserved for the men, whereas she thinks Mary should be in there doing the women's work with her in the kitchen. And Jesus tells Martha, Martha, look, I know you feel like you have to do all this hospitality stuff. But he says, it's not necessary. He says, I'm not gonna tell Mary to stop what she's doing and go with you instead. And here's the point. And this is really where it all comes to. Jesus treated women as full-fledged disciples. Jesus treated women as full-fledged disciples, not as second-class disciples. In other words, Jesus didn't expect women to serve him and be his disciples. Rather, he wanted women to be his disciples and he treated them equally with the other disciples. Now, by doing this, understand, Jesus was going against the grain of cultural norms of that day, which did not at all treat women as equal with men. Now, Luke's gospel in particular really focuses on this aspect of Jesus' ministry. It emphasizes the women who follow Jesus. Even our women's Bible study over this past uh, semester, they've been studying the gospel of Luke and focusing on what it says about the female disciples of Jesus. But in Luke chapter 8, for example, it says that, that Jesus was traveling throughout all the region of Israel teaching and preaching the gospel. And it says his 12 disciples were with him and also many women. And it actually lists three of those women by name. Their names are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And in fact, Joanna's later mentioned in another chapter in the Gospel of Luke. So she was a prominent disciple. So these three women were especially prominent. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And it says there were many others. So we see this, this group of female disciples. We see them uh, on multiple occasions throughout Luke's Gospel. Two of these women, Joanna and Susanna, it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, that they actually financially supported Jesus' ministry out of their means. 
Furthermore, uh, some other interesting things we know about Jesus' female disciples. When Jesus was crucified, when he was being crucified and led through the city of Jerusalem, we read that the women were following after him. And that's interesting because Jesus' other disciples, you remember they had scattered, they had run away, they were afraid. They had all run away because they were afraid that they were next. Just as Jesus had been arrested and was being beaten, they were afraid that they were gonna be arrested and beaten as well. And, And so they all ran away except for one. You know who it was? John. John is the one who didn't run away. I always think about that. You know, he never, he never pushes that. He always calls himself the, the disciple who Jesus loved. But the fact is, John was also incredibly brave. He's the one who didn't run away when everyone else did. And John was the one who was there at the foot of the cross. But along with John, it seems that these female disciples also didn't run away, but they followed Jesus all the way to the cross. Um, We also know that all four gospels tell us that the women were the first to come to the tomb on Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave. They were the key eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now that's important because in that culture, women were not allowed to testify in court or their testimony wasn't taken seriously in court. It was considered untrustworthy. And so in other words, let's, let's think about this. If you made up a story, a totally fake story that you, wanna, you want people to believe, you want to pass this story off on people, you would not make women the key witnesses in the story. Why? Because it would be counterproductive because nobody would believe a story like that. So why would you tell it? If you were going to make up a story, you would always choose to have somebody, you know, reliable, somebody uh, who seemed legit be your eyewitness. And yet pushing against tradition and culture in all four gospels, the testimony is given by women. There would have been pressure to eliminate these women from the story and replace them with men who would seem more, uh, let's say, valid or believable to people in that society. And yet the early Christians refused to do that. Why? Well, first of all, because this is what actually happened and they weren't willing to change the facts. And secondly, because they didn't believe that women were less than men. They were following Jesus in this way. Here's what you need to know about that. When Jesus treated minorities and women as equals, this wasn't something that he came up with. This wasn't something that was new to him. It wasn't like Jesus made this up. It didn't exist before and Jesus came and totally changed it all. No, see, Jesus was actually being consistent with one of the core teachings of the Bible, which is found in the very most ancient biblical texts. And that is this, that every human being, no matter what their gender, no matter what their race, no matter what their physical level of ability, they are of equal value by nature of the fact that they are created by God and created in the image of God. In the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, we read how God created the world. And it says that after he had created everything else, at the very pinnacle of his creative work, he created human beings. And it says that he created them in his own image. And it says male and female, he created them. Everything that God created, as you go through a story, you know, he creates this and he creates that and he looks at it and everything he creates, he looks at it and says, it is good. But after he creates human beings, he says something different. He looks at them and what does he say? He says, it is very good. See, out of all of creation, this is what sets human beings apart, that we are created in the image of God. Your cat is nice, but it's not created in the image of God. Your dog, I'm sure, is very smart, but he's not created in the image of God. But you are. That's what sets us apart. And what does that mean, by the way, that we're created in the image of God? Well, it means a lot of things. Let's just give you a couple. 
One of them, it means that we are created with certain capacities which other creatures don't have. So for example, we are creative beings. We are rational beings. More importantly, we are spiritual beings. God created us. God, as an eternal spirit, created us in his image and gave us an eternal soul, which will live forever, which means this, that when your body dies, that's not the end of you. You will go on existing. Your soul will exist for all eternity. The question is where? Will your soul spend eternity with God or will you spend eternity separated from God? And if God is the source of light and beauty and all that is good, well then to be separated from that for eternity would be death and darkness. It would be, well, hell. There's another aspect to what it means that we're created in the image of God. One author describes it this way. It's a female author. She said, it wasn't that God noticed fatherly love and then decided to call himself a father. It wasn't, so I'll say it again, it wasn't that God noticed fatherly love and then decided to call himself a father. Rather, God created fatherhood to serve as an image of who he is in his paternal love and care. Another example, she says, it wasn't that God noticed the intimacy of marriage and then decided to call himself a husband and a bridegroom. Rather, God created marriage to be an image of the faithful, passionate, sacrificial love that he has. See, the point is this. One of the ways that we reflect the image of God that we bear is when we live out the attributes of God. So when we are truthful, when we love, when we forgive, when we are faithful, when we are loyal, when we are good, he created us in his image. Male and female, he created us. First of all, that tells us that all humans have equal value innately because of how they are created. And that's really important. That makes a really big practical difference in how you view people and even how you act. For example, the Nazi regime in Germany, you know, they they exterminated people based on this ideology that some people are worth more than other people. And this is the interesting thing. You know, they didn't start out killing Jews, the Nazis. You know how they started out? They started out exterminating those who had mental and cognitive disabilities. So if you had a mental disability, they started killing these people and exterminating them. Why? Because they said these people are a drain on our society. They drain on finances, drain on resources, and therefore they're not contributing. They're not able to contribute, so therefore we'd be better off as a society without them. So they started killing people who had mental uh, and cognitive disabilities. Then they moved on beyond that, and they started exterminating people who were handicapped in other ways, people who were terminally ill. They just started uh, letting them die or even killing them, euthanizing them. And then they went beyond that, and they started euthanizing the elderly. Now, why would they do that? Because in their view, a a person's worth was based, their value as a human was based on their ability, what they could do or what they couldn't do. But here's what the Bible says. It teaches that all people, including the handicapped, including the mentally disabled, including the elderly, including the terminally ill, they have value, intrinsic, inherent value that cannot be taken away from them and that cannot change. Their value is based not on their ability. It's based on the fact that they've been created by God in his image. Now, in the ancient world, women were not considered to have as much value as men. In the eyes of the law, uh, a woman had the same status as a child. In other words, she belonged 
to someone else, always a man, uh, whether it's her father or her husband. Uh, in other words, a woman was not an autonomous person who had their own rights as, as an autonomous person. And because of that, historians tell us something interesting about the Greco-Roman world. And that is this, that the Greco-Roman world was disproportionately male. There were a lot more men than there were women. You say, well, how does that happen? I mean, isn't it kind of, you know, it's kind of always equal. There's 50-50. Well, no. Uh, here's why it was disproportionately male because of a practice called selective infanticide. Selective infanticide, which means exactly what you think it means. It means that when a child was born, if that child was unwanted or sick or let's say deformed or God forbid, if they were a girl, well then that, that family would often abandon that child. And the way they would abandon them is they'd take them out of the city into the forest where the trash was thrown. And so they put them on the trash heap to, to be left there to die. Sometimes they would die by natural causes. Often they would be attacked by wild animals. And in maybe the worst case scenario, they would be picked up by people who had bad intentions, pimps, slave sellers, right? Who would, who would take these children and then sell them into a lifetime of slavery and prostitution. It was an awful, awful thing. But what it led to was a disproportionate number of men and men in the society versus women. And of course, we look at that and we say that is shocking, that's appalling. But guys, in 1979, China introduced a one-child policy. And do you know what happened? The exact same thing. If the ultrasound came back that the child was a female and they could only have one kid, well, they want to have a boy. And they aborted so many baby girls who never saw life. And so, or never saw uh, light, right? The, in other words, and it led to what? A disproportionate number of men than women. See, for Christians though, we have a completely different ethic. For us, every child is a wanted child. Every child is a wanted child. Why? Because the Bible teaches that every human being is made in the image of God and has equal and intrinsic value. Back in the Roman Empire, it was Christians who would start coming around. They became famous for this and people mocked them for it. They didn't understand it. They would come around and they would roam these trash heaps and they would collect these abandoned children. Did you know that Christians invented the orphanage, but they also invented things like foster care, right? And so what they would do is they would go around and they would collect these abandoned children and they would adopt them, right? And they would raise them as their own. Why? Because the Bible tells us that that's what God has done for us, hasn't he? He values us. He rescues us from the trash heap and he saves us and he makes us his children. But see, the Bible doesn't only teach that women and minorities are equal. It also teaches us that they are something else, that they are unique. In Acts chapter 17, we're told this. It says this, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that God created nations. It means that God created nations. The fact that we have many nations in the world isn't an accident. It wasn't a oops, right? It was something that God intended and designed. And yet the thrust of the whole Bible is that God loves all the people of the world. The mission that Jesus gave his disciples is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and make disciples of all nations. And the picture we get in heaven at the end of the Bible is what? It's a picture of a great multitude made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, as people created in the image of God, there are ways in which even different cultures reflect God's image in different ways. And that variety, that uniqueness is good. It's by design. There are ways that men and women uniquely image God or reflect God's image in different ways. 
You know, sometimes the Bible uses female metaphors to describe who God is and how he loves us. For example, it says uh, God compares himself to a nursing mother. Another occasion, God says, compares himself to a young wife. And another occasion, Jesus, he says, you know, uh, like a mother hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wings. That's what I'm like. And yet God, at the same time, consistently and exclusively refers to himself with a male pronoun, doesn't he? He, it's always he. Jesus is, he's always the father. He's always the bridegroom. Jesus is always referred to as the son. See, in the creation story, God looks at the man that he created and he says, after saying that everything is good, he looks at the man and what does he say? It is not good that he should be alone. And so God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. In other words, there's something that he cannot do and he needs someone who can do that. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, look, exactly, that's it right there. That's so patronizing, that's so demeaning to insinuate that women were created to be men's helpers. That's so demoralizing, demeaning. But here's the thing, the term helper, I want you to understand, that's not a demeaning or denigrating term at all. And let me, and maybe say, well, well, how do you know that? Well, here's how I know that. Throughout the Bible, God uses that word to describe himself. That same word that he used to describe the woman, he uses to describe himself. He calls himself the helper of his people. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. Furthermore, one of the titles that was given to the Messiah, right, the greatest person who would ever live, the most important person who has ever lived, what was that title? He was called the servant. And when Jesus came, what did he say? He said, I am the servant. I came to serve, not to be served. And he told his disciples, if you wanna be truly great, then you must become a servant as well. In other words, Jesus exalted this role, this title, this word that many people thought was a demeaning word. Jesus took it and said, no, it's not demeaning. This is where the glory's at, guys. Well, why? Well, we'll think about it. I, I was talking to somebody today. He's an engineer. Um, this week, I was talking to him. He's an engineer. And he said this, well, when he's at work and there's something that he needs help with that he can't figure out, well, who does he go talk to? When he needs help, who does he talk to? He doesn't go to somebody who's less than him. He goes to somebody who has a skill or who has knowledge that he doesn't have. In other words, that's a really good thing, right? If you have kids and your kids come to you, why do they come to you? It's because you can do something or you know something that they don't know or they can't do. In other words, the idea that women are created to be a helper, this doesn't denigrate women. In fact, it just states a fact that there are things that women can do that men can't. And likewise, there are things that men can do that women can't. And that shouldn't be surprising to any of us. We're equal in value, but we're unique in many ways. And that uniqueness is by design and it is good. See, the idea that God created us in his own image has a, has a few other aspects as well. One of them is this. The Bible tells us that God is a triune God. In other words, he is one God who eternally exists in three distinct co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that by nature, God is relational according to his own nature. And so part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are relational beings. Again, this sheds light on the fact of why it was not good for the man to be alone. But here's the other thing. Throughout the Bible, we see that these different persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are all called God. They are equal in substance and value, and yet they have distinct roles and functions when it comes to God's work. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're all attributed with creating the, the creation 
But when it comes to the mission of God of bringing salvation to the world, then the roles begin to change. The father sends the son. The son obeys the father. The son glorifies the father. And the father glorifies the son. And the spirit, the father and the son together send the spirit. And the spirit reveals the son and glorifies the son and that glorifies the father and this beautiful just reciprocal relationship. And in Philippians chapter two, Paul the apostle says, look at Jesus. Use him as an example for your life of humble, humble submission to God, right? And, and to each other. He says, look, Jesus, he's of the same substance as God, as the father. And yet he didn't see that as something to be grasped. Rather, he let it go and he submitted himself to the father. And then the father exalted him to the name above all names. And Paul says, may we have that same unselfish heart in ourselves that isn't self-seeking. See, this idea of being equal but unique is found throughout the Bible. In Galatians chapter three, we're told that in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In other words, we get a new identity in Jesus. And yet, Paul also talks in that same letter about marriage and leadership and the distinction between men and women. He says this phrase, which I mentioned earlier in Ephesians five. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. And again, this is where a lot of people get hung up. They say, look at that right there. Everything you've said up until now, fine. But this thing about wives submitting, doesn't it just open the door for dominance? Doesn't it just open the door and empower uh, abusive people? Now we have to admit, again, that that has happened. People have used that verse in that way. But again, to do so is to hijack the text and go against the intent and meaning of the text. How do I know that? Well, because here's why. The very next verse says this. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's interesting. Notice the primary command to the husband is not to lead his wife. It's to love his wife. That's interesting. But notice this. How is the husband to love their wife? He's to do it as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? Well, Christ served the church right? He served her, put her needs above his own, suffered for her, and ultimately gave his life for her. Now imagine for a second, just bear with me, what if this was reversed? What if those two roles were reversed? What if instead of saying to husbands uh, that message, what if it said that message to wives? What if it said, wives, always put your husband's needs above your own? What if it said, wives, I want you to love your husband to the point of death and always sacrifice yourself for him. Let me ask you, if that was switched around and that was the message to wives, do you think that message could be taken and twisted and used against women by abusive men? Absolutely, it absolutely would. Perhaps even more so. Instead, though, it's the husband who is commanded to serve and to sacrifice, not the wife. That's interesting. And if you know that someone is committed to loving you and serving you and laying down their life for you and everything that they do, well, that's somebody that you would be eager to follow their lead, isn't it? See, the fact that men and women have unique roles in marriage and leadership and family is a reflection of how we're created in the image of a triune God a who, who eternally exists in a relationship of three unique persons who have different roles and functions and yet are equal in glory. So along with being equal and unique, I'll finish with this. Uh, it also tells that women and minorities are what? They are loved, very much loved. Now you might ask the question, if God created men and women equal, then what led to the devaluing of women? Even we see it in the Old Testament with some of the Old Testament characters. Well, the answer is this. 
What led to that is very simple. It's sin. Sin is when we deviate from God's standards. It's when we miss the mark. It's when we go off, right? We do things that are wrong. It's when we miss the mark. And uh, as people began, and we see it in the Bible, as they began to rebel against God, those who had power began to use their power, not to love and to serve, but to subjugate and domineer. And rather than valuing the unique characteristics and roles of the other, they began to say that their roles were more valuable and more significant and more important. These are actions of sinful pride and arrogance. And in the time of Jesus, we know, in fact, it got so bad that there was a prayer that Jewish men would, would often pray every morning. And that prayer would go like this. God, I thank you that I was not born a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. And one of the things that Jesus did is he came and he corrected things. But again, it wasn't something new. He's bringing it back to the way it was always meant to be. It was always intended by God to be. And in Jesus' kingdom, women and minorities are loved and treasured. Their status is equal with everyone else. Their roles are valued and important. And not surprisingly, a lot of women were drawn to Christianity for this reason. In fact, there's very well-preserved writings from the Roman Empire uh, in which people criticize Christianity uh, because they say it attracts the dregs of society such as slaves and women. See, in the early church, women's status was elevated. In his letter to the Romans, Paul mentions nine specific women by name who were partners in his ministry. For women, Christian marriage was liberating. Guys, understand this, because in most of the ancient world, it was common for men to have multiple wives and always to have mistresses. But Christianity came and condemned that and told men, no, men, you love your wives, be faithful to them, sacrifice your lives for them. So for women, this was liberating. This is a breath of fresh air. When it comes to minorities, you know, one of the things about Christianity that was so radically different in the ancient world is that every ethnicity at that time had their own religion, every people group. But Christianity came and it was different. It came that Jesus, it claimed that Jesus was the savior of all the world, of all peoples. And Christianity, following Jesus' commands, it quickly became international, multicultural, multilingual. It went into all the world and brought the message of God's love for all people, that he created them and he wants to spend eternity with them. Because in the greatest act of love, the greatest proof of love, God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He served us, he suffered for us, he put our needs above his own and he gave his life as a sacrifice for us in order to save us from that curse of sin and death. And the message to all people is this, God loves you, you are precious to him, he wants you, you have value in his eyes. So rather than denigrating This message of the gospel is the most uplifting message that exists in the world. It's the message that God has come to us, not to suppress anybody, but to lift us up into relationship with him so that in the end, there will be a great multitude of men and women and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of God. And the question is this for you and me, how do we become part of that multitude? Here's how, by accepting God's help by accepting his help, by embracing what Jesus did for you that you could not do for yourself, by saving you, by giving his life for you, by living the life that you should have lived, by dying the death that you should have died, and by resurrecting from the grave in order to save you. So as you go from here today, may you know this, that you are loved by God, and may his love move you and motivate you to give your life to him in every area. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has come down to us to lift us up into fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that all of us in here today would receive that grace. We'd receive that uh, which you've done for us that we could not do for ourselves. 
Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have sometimes maybe misused your word, misappropriated it. Lord, we want to hear from your word. We want to become the people you want us to be. So we ask, Lord, may we be shaped by you and may we receive your grace by faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 